Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who have made careers in government and politics and beyond. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group. My guest today is Luis Miranda, who, in addition to being a friend, is one of New York City's top political strategists. He is a nationally recognized advocate and organizer of the Latino community. He's the former chairman of the board of the New York City Health and Hospital Corporation, and he is a true defender and son of Puerto Rico. Interesting side note, he also happens to be the father of Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator of Hamilton. I wanted to talk with Luis because he has been a staffer extraordinaire in city government and has operated at the highest levels of politics in New York and across the country. His life and life story are so interesting that he's the subject of an HBO documentary that's out right now called Siempre Luis. I highly encourage you to watch it. Not many staffers get their own documentary. Given the state of the pandemic, Luis and I recorded this episode remotely. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Luis Miranda, welcome to Staffer. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jim. Long time. It has been a long time. Um, I so appreciate your giving us uh, your time today, particularly since you are um, in the midst of talking about Siempre Luis, uh, the HBO documentary about your life. Um, And that's where I want to start our conversation today, because there is a moment where you are describing your journey from Puerto Rico to New York. You're on a plane at the age of 19 because you had reached the conclusion that you needed to pursue something bigger than what you thought the island could offer. And it's a moment of enormous potential, but also some sadness, as you describe in the documentary. Now, obviously, it all worked out beautifully. You've had a life of meaning and import and impact. Um, But at that moment, nothing was assured. What do you think it is about yourself that you know, allowed you then and throughout your career has allowed you to sort of push all the chips into the center of the table and go for it? I, I always believe that you face whatever it's you're facing. Uh, doesn't matter if it's good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, my wife always says uh, that I, I have an unbelievable ability to switch on a dime. Uh, that people have to process stuff, need to think it through. And for me, those are luxuries that I don't allow myself to have. Uh, somehow, I believe, something continues to process in my head uh, whatever it's unpleasant that I'm doing while I'm doing it. Uh, and and, and I, 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 remember, I remember that plain right. I could close my eyes, see myself where I was sitting uh, in that plane, hearing myself, because I always have background music for my thinking, uh, which is weird, but I do. <laughs> and so, I, <laughs> so, so, just on that. So, on the in the documentary, you've got you know uh, the way we you know, airbags, the way we were, all the, yeah, like all the time. Yeah. So, is that yeah, is, we, are you we, actually listening to music, or are you also no, is that sort of a, in your mind? In my, it's got just it. in my mind. Is the yeah, yeah. background music in my mind? In fact, we had to go to Barbara Streisand to give us the okay to be able to use the way we we were uh, as background music for that tiny section because I remember that was the background music in my head. Uh, and then after I do, I then recalibrate. Am I going through the right path? Uh, do I need to change path? And, you know, the more I think about it, Uh, coming to the clinical psych program was just a door Uh, because the number of years later I realized I don't want to be a psychologist this is this is dull. This is not good for me. Yeah, so talk to me about that because you came to study at NYU, um, uh, clinical psychology, as you mentioned. But within a few years, you found yourself uh, working for Ed Koch as uh, director of the mayor's office for Hispanic Affairs. What, how did you make that transition? 
like I make every transition in my life. It's like, oh, this sounds good. Uh, but I, I realized the only big conscious decision uh, that I remember making was that of not being a psychologist. Uh, you know, I, I left Puerto Rico to do that. I always hope to return. I was going back to be a teacher uh, of psychology in Puerto Rico. That was the plan. So to all of a sudden realize, you know what? This is not what I want to do in my life. I, I, I don't like the pace at which people change. It's and so what too is, slow. And what attracted you about being a staffer for the mayor? The fact that it would allow me an opportunity in my head uh, to make systemic change, uh, to work on policy, to bring the Latino community into City Hall uh, in a real way. And the fact that Reagan had just signed the amnesty law allowed me to have an immediate action plan and thing to do, which was to go through immigrant communities in New York City and let them know that now you have a path uh, to legalize your situation and get out of the shadows. Well, and that may have been something that you saw as an opportunity for that position uh, to be more than it was that maybe others didn't see. Michael Stolper is is someone who is uh, interviewed in the documentary, and he says Luis took what had been considered sort of a token position and made it into one that was real influence with the mayor and the whole operation. Um you know, as you said, you saw the potential in the position at the beginning, but what did you do to actually make it influential? Because that's an experience that a lot of staffers have, right? They, they're happy with their role, but they want it to be bigger. I, I, I did many things. Uh, I think the most important one was that I actually liked the mayor. Uh, Sometimes you work for people that you despise. Uh, I remember when I, when I was chair of HAC, uh, that quickly I developed such disdain for Mayor Giuliani. Uh, and so it was a matter of time for me to get pissed off and say, fuck off. <laughs> uh, but I like the mayor. I like Mayor Koch. And... That allowed me to be part of his life in the little ways in which staff can be part of his life. I had lunch with him and others in many occasions. I visited uh, his home for discussions. I, on my own time, got involved in his re-election campaign. And... And I, I think he liked me, you know. Yeah. After he was mayor, you know, he had lunch with people from his administration. And I was one of the people who got invited uh, to be part uh, of that after uh, City Hall uh, experience. And I will never forget, I will never forget the best assignment that I ever got from Mayor Koch. He was looking for a new cook for Gracie Mansion. There was no reason for Mayor Koch to make me one of seven people who sat at the veranda of Gracie Mansion for several weeks eating the food of several chefs and pick one. What's the way to a man's heart? And, and I am telling you, when he did that, I said to myself, this dude likes me because this is a cool thing to do. It's like once a week, I had this tiny little hour and a half break from 90 hour weeks 
uh, to go and eat fantastic food in the veranda of City of Racy Mansion. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, you, um, you mentioned the difference between working for Mayor Koch and Mayor Giuliani. What was it in your experience where you said, all right, I've, I've hit the point with Mayor Giuliani? Uh, the pettiness and the stupidity. Uh, you know, I was heading the Health and Hospitals Corporation, a uh, massive organization, uh, problems left and right, being totally underfunded as much public facilities are, and having to deal with silliness was like the least favorite thing. Uh, we were in the midst of a different pandemic, AIDS, and here I am getting calls from City Hall that there is some resolution about cutting, I, I think it was $14 million. It could have been less, it could have been a little more, but HAC had a $3 billion budget. And here I am being badgered about $14 million that George Pataki wanted cut from our budget and Mayor Giuliani wanted to be nice to George Pataki. And there was this resolution uh, that then the opposition at the board, all my friends, because I had more in common with the opposition that when Maria Mitchell, uh, who was the, the mayor's person uh, at the board, that we needed uh, to cut $14 million. And I said to myself, my dad had a heart attack that day. Uh, and I remember thinking, fuck Mayor Giuliani. I am not doing this shit. We're in the middle of the pandemic. $14 million is a spit on the ocean for a $3 billion bureaucracy. And this guy, it's so heartless that this is what he wants to focus on. So I resigned. And then, and then there's the media on the other side who wanted for me to pick a fight. And, and again, I said to myself, Nobody elected me. This guy appointed me. I don't agree with him anymore. I resigned. I did my job. I'm not going to pick a fight because that's not my job. I was hired to do a job and I no longer believe in the person who hired me to do a job. So I leave. And I left. Well, so... You left. You had gone from working for Maricach, as you just said, to being um, uh, on the board of the New York City Health and Hospital Corporation and then as its chairman. Um, during the 1990s, you saw needs within the city and began filling them. Uh, in 1990, you were the founding president of the Hispanic Federation, which today is recognized as one of the premier Latino nonprofit membership organizations in the country. Uh in 2000, you helped found the Amber Charter School in East Harlem, the first Latino-led charter school in the state of New York. And that same year, you started your own political consulting and public affairs company, the Miram Group. Um, you know, you, and this comes through in the documentary too, you have a very clear point of view. I think people can, you know, our listeners will hear it in the way you talk about your life experience. Um and then you have this ability to see a need and create something new, you know, that didn't exist before. I just named a couple of them. What do you think it is about yourself or about maybe your growing up that gives you this ability to throw all your energy into something that doesn't exist and, frankly, a lot of people probably think can't exist? Uh, because somebody has to do it. <laughs> Why not me? And, and more importantly... Because I never see these tasks as my solo singing. I see these tasks 
as how can I entice others to come and build this together? Uh, <laughs> my entire family, I think at the, in the documentary, you see my daughter saying, and he comes to the office with these embelecos, uh, we call them embelecos, and he wants to do this, and half of them are good, and half of them are not. But we all jump into this right to make it happen. So I think that the most important ability I have is to bring people uh, along for this ride and not do it alone. You know, the Hispanic Federation uh, was an idea that United Way had. It was not my idea, but when I read, they had an eight-page concept paper on how to do this, and they had United Jewish Appeal Federation, Federation of Protestant Welfare Agencies, Catholic Charities, as models to follow. But how do you do it with Latinos? I remember when I met first uh, with the leadership of United Jewish Appeal Federation and they told me how they raised money where people were put in rooms and you're giving 50, so you're in this room and you're giving five and you're in this room. And I was like, if I get anyone in my community to give me five, I'm going to make out with them. <laughs> Never mind, put them in a room. That's not our model. That model can't exist. But we quickly did the research and realized that Latinos gave, gave a lot, gave in small denominations, and the church was the best example that they gave every single week. And when we ask Latinos, because we did research on giving, so why don't you give to this other organizations? It was actually a very simple answer, because they don't ask. The Red Cross asks, the church asks. So whomever asks, we give. There were all those programs where I even adopted a kid somewhere in Africa, and you send them money every week. You don't even know if they really exist. But it was like a good, hard thing to do. People did that. So every time I look at what needs to be done, I know I need to get resources uh, to do it. And I need to make it a group effort, a collective effort. Because when that happens, then, then you could do it. I, you know, I, and then you move on, because that's the other thing. You know, I, on the fifth year on the Hispanic Federation, I will see they will remain nameless. Some of them are even gone. People who have had the same job in a nonprofit for 25 years for organizations they created. And that's cool. If that's what they want to do, I, I, I can withstand so much energy on something in particular. Uh, but I always think that you only test if something works when you move on and there is no energy, no ideas, a different group of people taking over and changing what you made or keeping it the same, then you know if something can be tested over time and over leadership styles. Yeah. So um, Chuck Schumer is interviewed in Siempre Luis, and he says this about you. You knew as a political leader when Luis asked for something, people were going to listen. And you have had success in a lot of different types of roles as a community leader, as a fundraiser for campaigns and causes, as a campaign manager, as a board director, as a businessman. Being a staffer is often about persuasion and leadership of others. Um, so, you know, what do you think it is about that art of persuasion and leadership that makes success or failure? That I don't have to like someone to ask them to do something. I put aside my own personal feelings and I can be telling myself, what an asshole. And that is not going to stop me 
from asking you in the best way I can to join the ride, to help with resources, to help with money. And believe me, I have been sitting at tables right there at GSG when I'm meeting with someone who has a lot of money and the shit that comes out of their mouth. It's like someone should tape you and play this back to you because you come across like a total asshole. I will file that away and I will continue to have the conversation because I'm not there to judge who you are and what you say. I'm there for an ask and to try to do something together. So I'll focus on the task at hand. I'll put everything on the side and I won't let you tell me no. Well, I've, I've had the opportunity to be with you around some of those tables, and I love working with you, Luis. You do have such a discipline um, of and a focus. Um, and I did, you know, we do a lot of polling at Global Strategy Group. I did an informal poll of some people who have worked with you, uh-huh. and I want to <laughs> offer uh, you some of the things that I've heard. And, of course, for those who haven't yet watched the the documentary, you have to watch it. Your son, Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, <laughs> captures uh, you beautifully when he calls you a relentless motherfucker. Um, uh, here are a few more character traits. Candor. Loyalty, unfailing generosity, sense of humor. How would you describe yourself uh, and and the qualities that you think have made you be so successful? I, I think the, the 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 most important one it's that everything and anything I do comes from a place of love. Even when I'm being a dick, it comes from a place of love. And it comes from a place of caring about you and about the cause. Otherwise, I'll just walk away and do something else. I always remember my daughter was in high school. She had to do a paper. And she, for some reason, picked Mexico And I, you know, I I was in the mayor's office, so I was able to get to the ambassador or the consul general of Mexico. And she put so much work in the interviews, in doing all of that. And the day before the paper is due, I asked for it so that I could read it. uh, Because I've always been involved in my kid's life in probably much more ways that they would want me to be involved in their lives. And when I read it, I could not believe this piece of shit that this smart young woman had written. And I remember looking at her, taking the paper. Remember, that's before computers. (laughs) I tear it into pieces. And I said, you worked so hard in the background to do this paper, and then you wrote a piece of shit. And this doesn't represent who you are. And you were, I'm not going to let you hand this in. And we're going to be up all night, and we're going to rewrite this paper. So I spent the night with her. And even though... I am sure she thought I was the worst dad in the world. Whatever I had that night got canceled. And that dicky behavior came from a place of love because I wanted her and her work to represent the best of who she was. And that's the way I approach every task. And I believe that Coming from a place of love, it's what I do. I, I tell you this other anecdote that happened last night. My son needed to sign 350 posters. And you have to understand, this poor kid is in COVID world. 
filming a movie with protocols that are unbelievable that adds 50% more work into whatever the artistic pursuit is. He's filming, and I'm, uh, I reminded him at 3 o'clock, remember, you have to come to a house because uh, you have to sign this. And you also have to understand, for us to be with Lin-Manuel, we all have to be tested. So there is so much window to do things in all of these COVID protocols. So, so he says, I know that, I know I have to go there. I, I could hear him uh, writing the, the text. So at 7 o'clock, I said, so at what time are you getting here? And my heart, it's aching. This kid was picked up, because I get his schedule, at 6 a.m. to go to Brooklyn and begin filming. It's 7 p.m., 13 hours later. And he says, I'm still filming. I'm not going to get there until 8.39. I'm sure he was hoping for me to text, forget it, honey, you're too tired, go home and rest. And I responded, great, see you then. I'll have <laughs> dinner for you. <laughs> My wife is looking at me and saying, honey, can this be done at any other time? I said, I'm sure it can. Why not tonight? Every night is going to be that busy. So we're just postponing the inevitable. I'm just making it easy for him. I went that, and I that's got... That's why he calls you a relentless motherfucker. <laughs> I went and, <laughs> Out of I, love. <laughs> I went and got great food. I got his driver to help. We created a system for him to sign these 350 posters in the most efficient way so that he could finish as quickly as possible. It was out of love. But when things need to be done, they need to get done. You know, the, the, the documentary is beautiful for a lot of reasons, but I, I thought the insight uh, to your life with your kids and with your spouse, truly beautiful. Um, I loved watching you parent. What, you know, and and your adult kids all have tremendous relationships with you today. Um, what is it, you know, that you think is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a few years behind you. I've got a daughter who's in the ninth grade, a son who's in the sixth grade. Uh, what advice do you have for, you know, parents who are following, uh, following up? That, that's the most important thing in my life. My kids know that I'm always available. While we were talking, I got a call from my daughter and I texted back, call you at 11. My kids know that they are the most important thing in my life. When in second grade, <clears throat> I went to parent-teacher com uh, conference and my daughter's teacher said that she was having difficulty learning multiplication as she explained to me how she was teaching multiplication I thought it was asinine what she was doing but it's you know those new teaching methods that come around oh, uh, I know them. <laughs> I said to myself this is I'm not gonna fight with this teacher but my daughter has to teach and learn multiplication so for the next two months Every night, I spent home, and I taught my daughter multiplication tables, because that's the way I learned it, and that's the way I think it's the most efficient way of learning it. And she became an engineer and has an MBA in finance. So she learned multiplication. They are the most precious and important thing in my life, and I will stop the world to pay attention to them. Well, and, and to your point, your daughter learned not just multiplication, but she learned her her rock, right? I mean, uh, you, you also, you mentioned your wife, Dr. Luce Towns Miranda, who is an extremely accomplished person in her own right, 
a clinical psychologist whose career has focused on the assessment and treatment of foster care children. Uh, she's helped develop mental health programs for and with multiple nonprofit and government agencies. She has served on the faculty of Albert Einstein's College of Medicine. Um, she's a board member uh, of Planned Parenthood Action Fund. How did you how did you enable her success? How did she enable your success? And how did you do this while balancing raising uh, a family? Uh, I think the secret to our ma- marriage, we, we have survived COVID-19. That has been the test to our marriage because <laughs> we have never been together for so long. <laughs> she thinks I'm not hearing her. I hear everything around me. I hear every conversation. I go to a restaurant and I am paying attention to what every everything that is happening on every table. <laughs> the other day, I heard her talking to my daughter who knows more about my work style than she does because we have worked together for two decades. And she's telling my daughter, honey, He's walking around all day long. She, he doesn't stop talking. He is screaming at someone and then he's kissing him. He is bipolar. He is crazy, <laughs> but he is effective. I hear him all day long. I knew that I needed to marry someone who is smart. The bonus was that she was and continues to be gorgeous. And my dad always said, go and look at the mother because that's the way they look most of their lives. It's not what they look like now. You're going to go old with them. That's good advice. And that's why I went to see the mother on our second date. Because I feel I want to see what I'm stuck with for most of my life when I have less options. Uh, And I knew I needed an independent person because I needed to do my own thing. And I needed to find someone where we were going to have point of convergence, where we were going to have a lot of fun when we were together. And the person was not going to be on my back, wanting me to do stuff, or I was not going to be in that person's back, wanting to do stuff. And, and, and that's sort of the secret to our marriage. She, I, I rejoice in all of her accomplishments. Uh, whenever I can be of help, I tell you a little anecdote. We were in Puerto Rico during the whole Hamilton experience, and we're in bed, uh, We start the morning, I make coffee, I bring coffee to bed, and we talk for a little while about the day and about what happened before. And she tells me, we have coffee, and she says, you know what, yesterday I met uh, with Pro Familias, which is the Planned Parenthood in Puerto Rico, and we're going to give them $100,000. And I'm like... This is an expensive cup of coffee that we're having at 6 o'clock in the morning. Where's the vodka? (laughs) But I knew that this was not coming out of the blue. My wife still buys most of her clothes at secondhand stores. Uh, So this is not a woman who spends freely. So if she's telling me that we need to invest $100,000 in Pro Familias, in Planned Parenthood in Puerto Rico, she really believes that. And we all have to do whatever we can do as a family to help her with that new goal that she has in life. So that's how we sort of roll. It, 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 there are there are moments throughout the documentary where watching you two um, interact with one another is really cool. Um, you mentioned um, the production of Hamilton in Puerto Rico following the uh, the 2017 uh, devastating Hurricane Maria. Um, 
you know, there's a there's a moment when Lin Manuel is on stage and he's announcing uh, that the the production will be at the university campus and protesters storm the stage. And you're asked, should they be taken off stage? And you said, no, no, let them speak. It was you then reflect that, you know, you've been that protester. You've been that protester on that campus. But it was such empathy. Your empathy really comes through. And right now we're living through a phase of protest, necessary protest. But in politics, often our response to protesters who are coming to object to our work or our boss's work is shut it down. What how do how do we, you know, get them to stop? Because what we want are applause, you know, and 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 cheers. What what do you think both policymakers and their staff and protesters need to be thinking about right now in terms of understanding the other side? People need to make their point. At that moment, first thing I assessed uh, was, is my son safe? I know his ego is intact, so I don't have to worry about some ego injury. Uh, for people protesting him. So I wanted to make sure he was safe. I looked at the four people, the three people who jumped on stage. I see they have no bats, no nothing that is going to harm my kid. And then I'm like, what they have to say, it's as important as what Lin-Manuel is saying. Lin-Manuel is saying that he's there to help Puerto Rico to raise money for the arts and to do it in a wholesome way where Puerto Ricans in the island can go and see Hamilton for 10 bucks, tourism can increase, and we raise money. What these kids are saying is that we supported, meaning the Mirandas, the PROMESA law that the Obama administration put in place because Republicans were in charge of Congress and there was very little choice of anything else, but Puerto Rico needed to be able to declare bankruptcy and restructure its debt. And that was the only way out. And I live in the real world. I don't live in what could be. I live in what is. And that's what I learned about politics. I want everyone to have affordable housing, but to get there, there's so many compromises and so many triumphs that you're going to have. So once I knew he was safe, they needed to make their point. The press, the press was there. The university was hurting. Cuts were real in every aspect in Puerto Rico. So why not the other message as well. There should be, I have learned from Trump, the only thing I have learned from Trump is that you could have 97,000 news cycle every day. So two messages can coexist at the same time. We're going to help Puerto Rico this time and you need to continue protesting to tell the world how Puerto Rico is hurting. So it was an easy decision. You know, the um, the story of your family's response to that hurricane is absolutely incredible. And I am so glad it is a large thrust of the documentary um, because you stepped into a breach immediately. You immediately began uh, raising money. You organized a logistical network to deliver food and supplies. You rallied people emotionally, and then you decided to produce Hamilton there over a three-week period when that required not just immense planning, it required the actual reconstruction of a theater, and at the very last moment, negotiations over a labor dispute to which you were not even a party. I, When I looked at that, I thought, this man's whole life has built, been built for this. Do you ever reflect on the fact that being, you know, who you have been as a staffer 
has now put you in a position to do things and affect people's lives in your uh, in your beloved Puerto Rico in a way that maybe would have been impossible had you pursued another career? Uh, yes, uh, because I'm never afraid of the work and staff is never afraid of work. I'm never afraid of the challenge and staff sometimes their bosses tell them to do things uh, now that I'm a boss that you think like, really? That, that was so unfair. But hey, if you don't ask for unfair things, you don't test people's ability to move the ball forward. Uh, and I'm never afraid to do the little task. Something that most people would miss in the documentary, uh, but everyone who was with me saw, was me counting the number of chairs in the new venue. You have two seconds of me counting. And I'm counting because I got there and they told me there are 1,900 seats. And then somebody else said, 1,857. And then somebody else says, 1,790. I said, fuck this. How many chairs this theater has? Because we need to know the precise number of chairs because we are sitting either 1,800 asses or 1,790 or 1,900. So I said to myself, I'm going to count the damn chairs myself. So I went through the entire theater and I counted the chairs. You could not think of a more menial task that the lowest in the wrong staff does. But it was so important to me because so much depended on it. And now I have gotten three different responses to the same question that I said, I know how to count. I'm going to go and count chairs. So it doesn't stop me from doing the most so-called menial tasks because sometimes those are key to the success of something. Absolutely. You said such such a mouthful there. And I want to uh, just, you know, pick up on where you are in your career today. You are recognized as a leading political strategist. You have uh, helped elect Senators Chuck Schumer, Hillary Clinton, Kirsten Gillibrand, Congressman Espayat, Mayor de Blasio, and recently Attorney General Letitia James, uh, who is the first African-American woman elected to statewide office in New York. But I want to ask you about a phenomenon that happens in our business, and I think in all businesses society-wide, which is particularly minorities are considered experts within that community, and I'm using air quotes, and lifted up sort of to say, oh, you should lead this work, but it's actually fenced off. And so how did you break out, frankly, from being a recognized leader within the Hispanic community and strategist within that community to being the guy in charge of major operations, the you know, pinnacle apex strategist? Uh, first, I have been lucky to have good candidates. If you have a sucky candidate, it, 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 sometimes it really doesn't matter unless your candidate, like Trump, becomes the proxy for an angry mob in the country that is tired of the status quo. Yeah, he didn't win the popular vote. He was selected because people were pissed off and he was the only other alternative. So they elected this asshole to the White House. Uh, so first, I have been very lucky uh, to have uh, great uh, candidates. And I, 
my therapist, when I was in therapy in my 20s, my therapist used to tell me, follow your instincts and never not listen to them because your heart and your mind will help those instincts express themselves. But the instinct that comes out of your gut, always listen to it. And those gut feelings are part of the art and the science of politics. And I, you know, I, I, I never like to say pretty things about me, but I have good instincts. I, that's how I ended up being a good dad and a good husband. I have good instincts. And then I believe in science. I will immediately go to you guys at GSG and say, I need a poll. Thank you for the plug and the business. <laughs> I <laughs> want to know at a particular point in time where people are. Then I want to take those and I will go to GSG again. And I want some focus groups. I want to give context and color and fabric to those numbers. And then it's based on all of that that you develop a plan of action, that you figure out where Latinos and African-Americans with their own thinking about the same reality fit and how do you win. So the overall strategy, if you don't think about the overall, you could do well in the Latino community, you could do well in the black community, but you may not win because they are pieces of a larger puzzle that political operators have to put in place. When you were coming up, was there anyone who you worked with or near that you looked at as an example or a mentor? I, you know, by, by first big political job was, was really at Koch. Uh, and uh, I learned so much about politics from him. And if I learned something was that, you know, I was there in the last term during the whole scandals that rocked the political system. Uh, in the city of New York. So every day, uh, I was always afraid to read the headlines in the newspaper because that would color what my day would be like. Uh, but I, I, I learned that you adapt, that you don't have to tell people what they want to hear. You have to tell people what it's right to move their existence forward. Uh, so if, if I were to think Think of someone. And then I love talking to people. Even to this day, Jim, I do focus groups myself just to talk to normal people. I go to fine fair to buy groceries, one of the few activities that I do during the pandemic. My wife never wants to go with me because it will take me forever. I will talk to people in the supermarket. I want to know what they think about this. I am, they see me in Univision debating a Republican, so they'll give me their opinion about what I said the night before. I love people to normal, to normal people because they have so much wisdom. And that you don't learn in polls or your instincts don't give you. But just having those interactions makes no difference. You have been so generous with your time. I will ask you one final question, and that is, it's one of my favorites, and it's about failures. Was there a time when you worked hard at something, but it flopped, or you just made a mistake? And what was that experience, and what did you take from it? Uh, it was 
I don't know if it was a failure. Objectively, it was, because if you're in a campaign and you lose, you lost. It's a failure. Uh, and, and, and we color it in a thousand ways to make ourselves feel good. But he was not electing Freddie Ferrer, mayor of the city of New York. Uh, it would have happened. Uh, we had worked so hard with so little resources. And, you know, all of your partners at GSG had been part of this journey uh, from the very beginning. When, when you said at the beginning, uh, you're loyal, that got their loyalty for me for life, for life. Because it was stuff that people didn't have to do that they went and did. And we lost. And we lost because of racism. Uh, we lost because we didn't do everything that we needed to do. Uh, and we lost the opportunity in two decades later. We've never had a Latino mayor in the city of New York. Luis, I consider you a friend, and it is truly an honor to talk with you today. Um, having worked with you, something I am so glad comes through in Siempre Luis is your abundance of love, which we've talked about today, the kindness with which you treat everyone, your insane level of drive, and your ability, even in the most stressful moments, to laugh. And I cannot thank you enough uh, for making time to talk with me today. Um, and do take care of yourself, please. Because I, I do, I do. That, okay, good. Because even 85% of you is still, you know, like 10 men. So that we'll take that. We need that. Uh, we, we need you uh, in our lives and, and you know, the, the community needs you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, everyone, I hear the gavel pounding this meeting to a close, which means this episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.